Good morning. Mark mentioned uh, that you got the third string. I was thinking maybe it's my background in athletics. You got the freshman team, but uh, <laughs> thank you all for being here. Uh, as most of you know, Greg is with his family in Belgium as they honor the passing of Carol's mom, and Brian is on his way back from visiting family. In fact, Brian texted me yesterday. He's probably somewhere between Kingman and Barstow. Uh, that's an exciting drive, so pray for them. <laughs> thank you, Mark and Carrie, for organizing the music this morning and to Debbie Billington for all she does behind the scenes to keep us functioning. As we examine the scriptures this morning, it is my prayer that you would fulfill the role of Bereans in Acts 17.11, of whom it was said, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. The succinct quote, In essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity, has been attributed to St. Augustine of Hippo, John Wesley, and to a number of theologians in between. It is often cited as Christians' attempt to reach consensus regarding their core theological and ethical convictions and how they will live out in church and society. The quote is full of wise counsel, and yet it also begs an important question. What are the essentials? Recently, the elders here at EFC have been studying Paul's instruction to the leaders in Ephesus as recorded in Acts chapter 20. Here, Paul warns the leaders to be on the alert as, the atta as attacks will come against both the church and its gospel message. In studying the types of attacks levied against the church, I observed that they tend to fall into two categories, attacks on the person of Christ, who he is, that he is fully God, fully man, that he spoke and the universe leapt into existence, and that he is fully God. And attacks on the Christ of what he did. Today we will look at one of those attacks on the works of Christ as once again Paul warns us about the problems that stem from denying the resurrection. So let's turn to our text, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as we examine your word today, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts, focus our minds, and strengthen our faith in your truth, so that we may leave here changed to the image of your son Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. On Good Friday, 1867, a complete version of Johannes Brahms' German Requiem prepared at Bremen Cathedral. At the time, texts for traditional requiems came from the Catholic Requiem Mass 
and were thus in Latin. Brahms, however, rejected the language and the structure and content of the Requiem Mass. Instead, he used texts from Luther's translation of the Bible, which he learned growing up in the Lutheran church. And yet, by most accounts, Brahms was a free thinker rather than a believer. Thus, the German Requiem does not contain texts that deal with salvation through Christ, his miracles, or his resurrection. While a traditional requiem begins with a prayer for the dead, in contrast, Brahms' requiem begins with a quotation from the Beatitudes. Although Brahms' text does point to God as the source of comfort, Brahms refused to include verses dealing with salvation. When asked to include them, Brahms replied, As far as the text is concerned, I confess that I would gladly omit even the word German from the title and instead use human. Also, with my best knowledge and will, I would dispense with passages like John 3.16. On the other hand, I have chosen one thing or another because I am a musician, because I needed it, and because with my venerable authors, I can't delete or dispute anything. But I had better stop before I say too much. Brahms' refusal to include texts that talked of Jesus or salvation revealed his humanistic orientation. In fact, a protege of Brahms commented about his mentor, such a man, such a fine soul, and he believes in nothing. He believes in nothing. In 1820, Thomas Jefferson compiled the life and morals of Jesus of, Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth by cutting and pasting sections of the New Testament. For those of you under 25, that means he literally cut with scissors and pasted with glue the New Testament. Jefferson's condensed version excludes all the miracles of Jesus, including any mention of the resurrection. Lest we think this only a product of the Enlightenment period, early 20th century theologians denied the resurrection because of a post-Enlightenment bias against the possibility of miracles. On the screen is a cartoon from 1916, which reads in part, it is possible the very body of the Savior himself may be discovered. If the Savior's body was embalmed, it will be found in the lost tomb. You see, resurrection is at the heart of everything. C.F. Evans, a contemporary writer, has said, to a greater extent than it is anything else, Christianity is a religion of the resurrection. More than anything else, we count on the reality of the resurrection. It is attacked, it is denied, it is ridiculed, it is ignored, it is explained away constantly because it's the vital point in Christian faith that holds up everything else. Naturally, the enemy hits that reality. The resurrection of Jesus is the basic cornerstone of all Christian faith and is the hope for all human history. If there is no resurrection, there is nothing to hope for. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul postulates this very issue and then proceeds to show the consequences if Christ didn't rise. Behind the, behind the issue was a historical problem in the city of Corinth. In much of this epistle, Paul is discussing problems in the Corinthian church, problems which had arisen because they had allowed their thinking to be conditioned by certain pagan beliefs around them. They were victimized by the human philosophies which made up the most part of their lives before they were saved. And even having become Christians, they were still holding on to some of these old beliefs. Among the many philosophies that had found their way into the Corinthian, Corinthian assembly was this one. The Greeks taught that there was no such thing as a physical, bodily, fleshly resurrection. They didn't believe that. In their philosophy, spirit was good and flesh was evil. And the epitome of pain and good was to abandon the flesh. To then be reborn in the flesh, resurrected in the flesh, would be to enter a second incarceration. 
for the Greeks to escape the body was everything. For example, the Stoics believed that the infinite deity, the infinite mind of the universe, was some infinite fire. And a little spark of that fire found its way into the heart of every human. And when that human died, that spark returned to the infinite deity. The body wasted away in the grave. That is why, for example, when Paul was preaching on Mars Hill to the philosophers of the city of Athens, and his message was a message of resurrection, they were so shocked and taken aback by it. Turn over in your Bibles to Acts 17, 18. Here Luke records that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And then skipping down to verse 32 in Acts 17, it says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. You can see this was not part of great philosophical or religious belief. They believed in the immortality of the soul, a type of reincarnation, but did not believe in the resurrection of the body. Plato himself taught that the human body was a prison and man should long to escape that prison. And so some in Corinth were saying, everything is spiritual. The dead do not really rise. So Paul addresses this issue. But before we get into the text, I want to address Paul's method. Recall your geometry from ninth or 10th grade. If you're 35 or older, there's a good chance you spent most of your time in this class developing a proficiency of two column proofs. That's usually where most people grow. A method of formulating an argument that goes back to Euclid and even the Greeks. However, if you followed the standard curriculum, you probably spent a day or two on a method called proof by contradiction. This method, this method establishes the truth or validity of a proposition by showing that assuming the proposition to be false leads to a contradiction or logical fallacy. For example, you would use this method to show that the square root of two is an irrational number. Paul will use that method of reasoning to lay out his argument. So back to our text. Notice how he begins in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some of you are saying there is no physical resurrection. The chapter begins, as we read earlier this morning, that Paul says this is the gospel, that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that all, the people who, and that all these people saw him. And that is what we preach, and that is what you believe. Now, if that is the heart of the message, that Christ be preached, that he rose from the dead, how can you say there is no resurrection of bodies? You cannot logically say, I am a Christian, I just don't believe in the resurrection. And yet, that is what some would wish to do. They would want to say that Christ rose in a spiritual way, or a soulish way, or his influence rose, or he is alive as far as we retain his writings in the spirit of what he said. As John and Linda acted out last week, some would argue that Christ merely swooned on the cross and that he, then he was revived in the coolness of the tomb. This kind of thinking had even made its way into popular culture. If you recall at the end of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Spock has just died in a heroic attempt to save the Enterprise and its crew. After a funeral service, which, interestingly enough, in a godless society in the future, they played Amazing Grace on the backstage, Dr. McCoy turns to Captain Kirk and kindly offers this empty hope. He's not really dead as long as we remember him. Back to the text. 
If Christ did not rise, there's no resurrection of the dead. If corpses stay in the ground and rot, what are the consequences? Let's see how Paul lays this out. Point number one. The first consequence, Christ is not risen. If you believe there is no resurrection of bodies, then Christ isn't risen. Look at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If you're going to deny a literal, physical, bodily resurrection of human beings, then Christ didn't rise. And what Paul is affirming here is that Christ is, in every sense, human. He is a man. Though 100% God, God of very God, equal to God in glory and essence, he is nonetheless 100% human. Human in the fullest capacity of humanness. And if you deny a literal, physical, bodily resurrection of the dead, then you are stuck with the fact that Christ is not risen. He is a man. He died as other men died. If he doesn't rise, then there are terrible things which result. Just to make very sure that everyone understood this, at the end of the book of Luke, the, the Lord puts on a demonstration that, that is remarkable. Turn over to Luke 24. And let's look at verses 36 through 43. Luke 24, 36 through 43. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took and ate it before them. Asking for something to eat was a wonderful demonstration of his humanness, that he was alive in a physical body. Paul's point is this. If men do not rise, Jesus did not rise. Having made that point, he follows with point number two. If Christ did not rise... All gospel preaching is useless. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. At this point, Paul does not appear to be talking about the act of preaching or the veracity of the message, as he will address that later. Instead, his point is, what is there to talk about? The whole gospel is subverted. You do not have a gospel without resurrection. You have a dead rabbi. There is no good news. We are left with the conclusion that the one who thought he could pull it off couldn't, and he rotted in a Palestinian tomb. Take the resurrection out, and there is nothing left. Despite this conclusion from Paul, there are many churches today that attempt to deny the fact of a literal resurrection and yet continue. Since I do not make it a habit to listen to this type of preaching, I did a search to see what I could produce. Here is a transcript from a real sermon. Listen to this. I suggest that we confess openly that the resurrection is a myth. That is not to say that it's not true. Interesting. <laughs> On the contrary, to say that the resurrection is a myth is to say that it represents the deepest kind of truth. To say that the resurrection is myth is to acknowledge that it is not clear what happened historically when the Bible describes Jesus as being raised from the dead. It means we do not have to believe in the literal truth in any one of the Bible accounts of the resurrection. To say that the resurrection is myth is to recognize it as a symbol of transcendent truth 
more than historic fact. And as a symbol, it means that God's truth is open-ended. God's word is not something all spelled out and nailed down in the literature. I don't think I need to comment further except to say that you have to go to graduate school to learn to write a paragraph that illogical and incoherent. (laughs) Moving on to point number three. If Christ does not rise, our faith is empty. Look at the second half of verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. This is remarkably simple. If Christ didn't rise, then all gospel preaching is useless, and so is our response to it. This is a big delusion. Christianity is the biggest ripoff yet. If Christ did not rise, we have put our faith in nothing. For to be a believer in Christ, to be a Christian, Paul says in Romans that you must confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And if you have believed that and banked your life and eternity on it, and it isn't true, your faith is useless. If Christ is dead, he cannot save us, and we are believing in something that's an absolute illusion. Abel, who believed God, was a fool. Enoch never walked with God. Noah was an incredible fool, spending 120 years to build a boat in an act of obedience to God. He's spending eternity in hell. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Gideon, all the heroes who placed their faith in God in anticipation of a coming redemptive work were fools. God lied. It never happened if Christ didn't rise. Fourth, the apostles are liars. Look at verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not rise if it is true that the dead are not raised. In other words, Paul is saying nicely, Paul, Peter, James, John, etc. are all lying. You may have heard this line of thinking. The Bible is a wonderful book. We don't believe all of it, but the men meant well. They were good religious men. Look, they were either telling the truth or they were telling lies. They're either truthful or they are liars. Good mistaken religious men don't say, I saw Jesus with my own eyes, if it isn't true. The Bible tells us he was seen by Peter, then by 12, then by 500, then by James, then by all the apostles, then by Paul. And Paul saw him a couple of times. He was seen. Either they told the truth or they didn't. Furthermore, if they are liars, why should we believe anything they say? If they would lie about the resurrection, why should we believe they would tell us the truth about hell? Why should we believe they would tell us the truth about sin? Why should we believe anything they say about obedience, about blessing, about anything else? If we cannot trust them with the greatest truth of Christianity, why should we trust them with anything else? If Christ is not risen, the entire system comes crashing down. That is Paul's point. However, Paul isn't finished. Point number five. If there is no resurrection, Christ is not risen, sin's power is unbroken. Look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Did you hear that? If Christ isn't risen, we are still under sin's curse. We are left like Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth, looking at the blood on our hands and with futility remarking, out, damn spot, out, I say. You see, the one thing we need is a savior. We are drowning people. 
We need someone to save us. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, he failed. The Bible says he conquered sin, he conquered Satan, and he conquered hell. Now, if he didn't rise, he lost, sin won, Satan won. If there is no resurrection, still, sin is still on every man. And the only place we were ever occupied for eternity is hell. There can be no forgiveness, you see, until the penalty is pay, paid. How do you know if he paid the penalty? Turn over to Romans chapter, chapter 4, and let's look at verses 24 and 25. They'll give us the answer. Romans 4, verse 24. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now turn over to Romans 5, and let's look at verse 10. Here Paul tells us, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. He could never save us unless he came out of the grave. Paul adds a sixth sequential conclusion in verse 18. The dead in Christ have perished. Look at it. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That's a euphemism for those who have died. This is the logical connection. If there is no resurrection of bodies, then the people who already died with their faith in Christ are damned. That is a shocking conclusion. Think about it. In my brief time here, we have mourned the loss of several dear saints. And while we may have mourned our loss, we have been comforted by the fact that they are in the presence of Jesus. Paul hits us in the face with a stark reality. I'm reminded of the saying, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. This is un utterly unacceptable. As Paul says in Philippians 1.25, my desire is to part with and be with Christ, for that is far better. That's our hope. We believe there's victory in death because Christ has broken its power. And Peter and James and John and Paul and Stephen and Philip and all the saints and all the martyrs of all the ages who love the Lord Jesus Christ and all the saints of the time before the cross, they're in his presence right now. Moving on to the seventh and final point. Christians are the most pitiful people. Look at verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. There is one thing about Christianity. It's a total thing. Then you come to Christ. When you come to Christ, you don't take Christ plus some other system. It is Christ all in. That's the strength of the text. We as Christians have hope in Christ alone. If that doesn't pan out, we will have missed it. That's one of the problems I have with the coexist bumper sticker on the screen. You've seen them, usually on a Subaru, while the C is the... <laughs> I'm not sure what that means. Where the, where the C is the Islamic moon, the X is the Star of David, the S is the yin-yang symbol, Besides the fact that there are three letters that want to kill the other letters, Jesus didn't give us that option. To embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is to set aside every other religious system in the world. Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What Paul is pointing out here is that we have hope in Christ only, period. And if it doesn't pan out, we lose. 
If Christ did not rise, we're the most pitiful bunch in the world because there's only, there's only, that's the only thing that we've banked our time and eternity on. That is Paul's concluding statement. In a crushing argument, Paul shows the horrible consequences of denying the resurrection. Christ is not risen. Gospel preaching is useless. Faith is empty. Apostles are liars. Sin is unforgiven. The dead believers are damned. And Christ, Christians are tragic, pitiful fools like people on a ship headed for a disaster. But, thank God for that. Verse 20 affirms our hope. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul turns the, th- Paul turns the thing all the way around. He has demonstrated that denying a literal, physical resurrection leads to consequences and inconsistencies that are unacceptable with biblical Christianity. All of that was not true. Christ is risen. And if Christ is risen, then what? Then just the opposite is true. Gospel preaching is valuable. Our faith is priceless. The apostles spoke the truth. Sin is forgiven. The dead in Christ are with him. And Christians are the most glorious people in the world. The resurrection was a stumbling block to Chuck Colson. And as as an advisor to President Nixon, Chuck was known as the hatchet man. In 1972, President Nixon had just won re-election in a landslide victory. However, some lower-level Republican operatives, likely acting on their own, were caught breaking into the Watergate Hotel to steal Democratic campaign documents. Now, to put this in perspective, it would be the equivalent of if if USC were to play UC Davis in football, and an SC graduate assistant and some frat boys were caught stealing the UC Davis special teams playbook. While it was illegal and wrong, it had, it had no bearing on the outcome. However, President Nixon and his advisors, rather than admit the event had occurred, throw the perpetrators under the bus and take the PR hit, chose to cover up the event with lie after lie. Eventually it all unraveled as advisors to President Nixon began to cut deals to save themselves and Chuck Colson went to, ga- went to jail for obstruction of justice. It was in jail that a friend led him to saving faith in Christ. Chuck overcame the hurdle of the resurrection when he realized, as part of a group of the most powerful men in the world, they could only keep a lie alive for a few months, and that there was no way the witnesses to the resurrection would have suffered beatings and death unless they were telling the truth. Back in Acts chapter 17, after Paul and Silas had preached and Jesus Paul had decided to preach Jesus and the resurrection. Some in the crowd mocked. Some delayed and said, we will hear again of this, and some believed. Those are all the alternatives we have. To mock or be skeptical, to delay or postpone, or to believe. Thank God I believe by his grace, and so do most of you. However, I'm sure in our fellowship this morning, there are some who have not believed. Maybe you've postponed it. Maybe you've been skeptical. May I say to you that there is no hope of life here and now or in eternity apart from Christ. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, you saw fit for us to gather this morning in this place and worship you. It is not because we are perfect people, but because you are an awesome God, worthy of our worship. Lord, thank you for the worship that we've already had this morning uh, in song and in prayer. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, his sinless life, sacrificial death, and resurrection. Lord, as we close, help us to live as you lived. Thank you for the wonderful time that we have shared. 
May we continue in your word and may your, our thoughts, our words, our actions be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark, thank you so much for the time and the effort. That was a great message. Um, those are some pretty good historical um, reminders that in the past uh, people had denial of the resurrection. And um, um, I'm uh, wondering uh, about calling an audible. Now, how about, you know, do you think we could sing, after we sing uh, the uh, Lead Me to Calvary, we could sing He is Worthy uh, before, uh, do you have that, do you have the music up there we could uh, pull? Carol, that'll be after Lead Me to Calvary. Let's stand and sing Lead Me to Calvary, and then after that, We'll sing, uh, He is Worthy. Um, let's close with a song. Um, is he worthy? Thank you, Carrie.
Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. You know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through. We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Does the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. And does Jesus, our Messiah, hold forever those he loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave, is David's root and the Lamb who on the slave for every people and tribe every nation and tongue he has made us a kingdom of priests to God to reign with the sun is he worthy is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory is he worthy
Our benediction this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go in peace.